All right, let's get started here this morning. We're going to be in Genesis 18. So if you want to find Genesis 18... That is where we will, at least at some point, we will read out of Genesis 18. We'll probably bounce around a little bit, um, but we're going to start there. Um, We do have a couple of visitors with us this morning who I'll introduce, because if I don't, then um, I don't know how he'll introduce me. Um, Tim and Deb Cross um, are here on a 13-week traveling nurse position for Deb. They're from Michigan, so you know they're good. I worked uh, one summer, well, I worked two summers on the Buildings and Grounds Committee at Concordia Ann Arbor, so I worked um, mowing lawns, and Tim was kind of, he was the, he was full-time, and so I always liked working with Tim because that meant instead of riding the zero-turn lawnmower, which destroyed my back, if I was working with Tim, we were usually on destruction mode. And we were cutting down. I got to use a sawzall. So if you ever need help with a sawzall, call me, okay? I'm happy to come and chop things. I learned it all from Tim. um, But we're going to see them for the next couple months, hopefully. And uh, we just want to welcome you both uh, down here to Kentucky. It's a good place. It's almost as good as Michigan. I need to be here one more year before I can really say it's better. Um, Let's start with prayer, though, and then we will launch in to the story of, we're going to focus on Sarah today. So enough about Abraham. Let's talk about Sarah today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. We pray now that you would grant that we so read, mark, and inwardly digest your word, that being strengthened uh, in faith and in love, we may be faithful unto death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, Genesis 18 follows hard and fast on Genesis 17, okay? And what was Genesis 17 all about? Circumcision. I know that some of you asked me privately, Pastor, could we do three more weeks on circumcision? And I want to, but I thought we better keep going a little bit. So um, remember, with circumcision, though, it's good to see how... Um, how one chapter leads to the next, okay? These are not just randomly thrown together stories, um, but usually, usually, there's sort of cause and effect. One thing builds on another. So uh, if you think back, the first child of Abraham was named? Ishmael, Ishmael, right? And that was, he was a child of the flesh, we said. The arrangement was, Sarah, and, and, you know, there's something good in what Sarah was wanting. I know it's strange. Um, those of you uh, who are ladies, you would never suggest to your husbands, why don't you take another wife, right? Um, but she was, her desire was to see the child of promise come into the world, okay? And so Sarah arranges with Abraham for Hagar to become Abraham's wife, kind of a surrogacy Situation and Ishmael is the, the son, okay. And for how long was Ishmael the son? Thirteen, Thirteen long years, long enough for Ishmael to become beloved by Abraham. Right? Abraham was not like, oh man, Ishmael, you're such a pain in the neck, 
right? He loved Ishmael. You can see that in chapter 17 um, when God says, I'm going to make the covenant with Isaac. Abraham says, why not just Ishmael, right? He's already 13. He's, he's ready to be a man, okay? Um, but God says, nope, it's going to be Isaac, all right? And so we have this replacement going on. Ishmael is going to be replaced by Isaac. The younger son replaces the older one. Where else do we see that in the Bible? That's a common occurrence. The younger replaces the older. What do you think, Jacob? Jacob and Esau, right? This is Jacob's favorite story. Remember, Rebecca is pregnant. Is it Rebecca or Rachel? It's Rebecca. Rebecca is pregnant. She has these twins in her womb, and they're struggling in the womb. They're wrestling. Jacob was always wrestling. And uh, the Lord says to her, the younger, or I'm sorry, the older will serve the younger. And so when they're born, there's this heavy emphasis on who comes first. Esau. He's the older one, but the older will serve the younger. Where else do we see a younger son replace an older son? Judah and Reuben. Judah and Reuben, right. So um, uh, Jacob's sons, Israel's son, the firstborn is Reuben. And Reuben is, of course, he had a couple wives too, right? So we're not quite so sure about that either. But the first son was Reuben. And what number was Judah? He wasn't, it was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then finally, Judah is the youngest son of Leah. Remember that story? There's so many good stories in Genesis. Jacob serves seven years because he wants Rebekah. Right, Jason? Did I say Jason or did I say Jacob? Jacob serves seven years for Rebekah, and then he wakes up in the morning, and instead of Rebekah, who does he find? Leah. Leah. Another one of those deeply weird. The Bible is full of weird stuff. Um, And that's good. That makes us scratch our heads and ask a lot of questions, right? Um, But in any case, Judah replaces Reuben. Okay, so we've got Jacob replaces Esau. Judah replaces Reuben. Where else do we see younger replacing older? Yes, when Joseph blesses his sons, or when Jacob brings his sons to be blessed by um, Jacob, remember, uh, Joseph has twins. Are they twins? I think they're just brothers. They're either brothers or twins. And uh, he brings his sons up to his father, and he thinks his dad is going to, you know, put the right hand on this one and the left hand on this one. And at the last minute, Jacob pulls the old switcheroo, right? And he gives the right-hand blessing, the good blessing, to the younger instead of the older. Manasseh gets a double portion, twice as much of a blessing. What else, though? There's more. Todd, where else? Very good, right? Remember the story with Samuel? They first, the first son comes by, and Samuel says, this must be the... Look how handsome he is. He's so tall. He's so strong, right? Um, And the Lord says, not this one. And seven of Jesse's sons go by. And then finally, where's David? He's not even in the room, right? Um, So the forgotten son, the last son, the runt of the litter, replaces the first son. Where else? Seth replaces replaces probably Abel, right? Um, But he also replaces Cain. Where else? 
Joseph, to some degree, yes, Joseph was the youngest um, when his brothers sold him into slavery. You kind of get the impression that it's everywhere. And if it's everywhere, then it's got to be about who's the most important person in the Bible? Jesus, okay? So in what way uh, is Jesus the younger son who replaces the older? How does that work? Because it's got to, if, if this really is a biblical theme, it, Jesus has to fit into it. So who does Jesus replace? He's both the younger, the new David, as well as the new Adam. Okay, he's the, yes, the second Adam. So the second Adam, the later Adam, replaces the first, the second David replaces the former, or you can think of it this way, he is the replacement for Israel. So all the Israel stuff runs its course, and then the Jesus stuff replaces it. Temple, law, sacrifice, all that stuff replaced in Jesus. All right? So we've, we, that's what we're going to see here um, with Isaac. So go to Genesis 18, and uh, before I get off on another track here, let's actually read so that we get through something this morning. And don't just talk about themes. We want to get the actual text. Who will read for us 18, 1 through 8? Go ahead, Ben, nice and loud. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick! Three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and young and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, what is familiar to us here? We've got some familiar things. Adam, what have we seen before? Yeah, Abraham likes living by oak trees, right? We've seen, we saw this with his previous altars. It seems that wherever he goes, he sets up shop by a big old oak tree, okay? This is a new one, the Oaks of Mamre, um, but we saw it at, I think, Hebron and Bethel. Abraham's always setting up shop under the oak tree. And let's just remember real quick, what's the symbolism of a big old oak tree. Why does Abraham like trees so much? Okay, a big tree, a tree conveys strength. It's tall, it's big, it's strong. What else? Okay, one thing at a time. It reaches up into heaven, okay? So when you think of a tree, you can think of a ladder. The tree is the ladder from earth up to heaven, or you can think of it the other way around, it's the ladder from heaven down to earth. Now picture in your mind here a big old tree. 
you've got the skinny trunk, and up at the top of the tree, which symbolically is up in the heavens, what happens when that trunk gets up to the top? Does it stay skinny? It branches out. So you've got earth going up, and then you've got the big old glorious sky, the big heaven up above. So even just in the shape of the tree, you've got a picture of heaven and earth joined together. The glory of heaven represented by all the leaves and the big cloud of the tree all around. Why is heaven cloudy, by the way? Why a bunch of leaves and a bunch of clouds and smoke? Why is heaven smoky? <laughs> so you can't see what's going on in there? Okay. What else might be the reason? Because it also says that heaven is a place of light, right? God dwells in unapproachable light. So it's not necessarily that things need to be hidden, but think of what the leaves on the tree might represent. Think of how many leaves would be on a big old oak tree. A whole lot. What's there a whole lot of in heaven? Saints and angels. So the angelic wings are like the, the leaves of the tree. And the, um, this is why the glory cloud is, it looks like a really busy place. Heaven is a busy place. There's a whole bunch of angels and wings beating their uh, wings around. That's why when the wind is blowing, you just turn off the TV and go outside and watch the leaves flutter in the breeze. And you can think St. Michael, St. Raphael. All the saints, right? Turn off the TV. Look at the trees. Okay, um, what else in this story here, or what else with trees? Anything else we want to say about trees? You didn't know that this was actually Arbor Day, did you? What else with trees? We got the, the ladder from heaven to earth, and lo and behold, what happens at the tree? It's not an empty ladder, is it? Who uses the ladder? The Lord appears. He climbs on down so to speak. Now, I'm not saying that he literally climbed down the tree, but that's the symbolic picture here. That's the significance of the tree. God appears at the tree. And it's a strange appearance, isn't it? Because there's three people. There's three men, it says. Look at verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three dudes showed up at the door. Now, it doesn't say God appeared. In other instances, it says God appeared to Abraham, and he immediately knew it. Here, you have God's appearance to Abraham, but his appearance is, how should we put it? In flesh. It's in flesh. It's cloaked. I like that. It's cloaked. There's something hidden about this. And yet Abraham, he doesn't have to scratch his head and say, have I seen you before? Did I work with you? You know, um, Abraham recognizes him right away. He sees him and he says, quick, don't pass by. Come into my house. Right. If the Lord appears, you want him to come in. OK, so Abraham shows him some good old hosp some southern hospitality here. Right. Um, now, we don't have any reference to a time span. So when we read chapter 18, since there's a chapter break there. We kind of assume something, don't we? We assume that a whole bunch of time has passed. 
But there's actually no mention of how long here it's been since Abraham had the Lord appear to him for circumcision and this day when God appears. It's kind of like that whole question, um, how long was it before Adam and Eve ate of the tree? There's two possible answers, right? The first one is that they lived in the garden for who knows how long. They were just doing what they were supposed to do, eating from the tree of life, not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe that went on for, I don't know, how long? Three months? 2,000 years, right? I think it's unlikely that any time passed by. I think the very first Sabbath day, the seventh day, is the day that Adam said, or Eve, I guess, right? Let's eat. I guess it was the serpent, wasn't it? But then Eve, you know, is deceived and Adam says, okay, good idea. I always wanted to eat that. (laughs) As soon as God said not to, I kind of wanted to. Um, So uh, let's just say, let's assume here that very little time has passed. Why is Abraham sitting down in the heat of the day then? What has just happened to him if this theory I'm proposing to you is correct? He just got circumcised and it takes a little time to recover. Okay, so when, and this is what I mean by seeing the connection between one event and the next, the cutting off of the flesh prepares Abraham now to interact with God. When the flesh is cut off, when the flesh is done away with, now you're ready to come into contact with the Lord, right? And what's different about this appearance of the Lord versus maybe some of the previous ones. It's not a vision, vision, is it? Nobody's sleeping here. Remember back in chapter 15, Abraham, God put him into this super deep sleep, and he had this, and it's great to have a vision, but now it's, I see him with my waking eyes. He's in person. Yes? Yeah, we don't know, uh, we don't get a description of God's appearance except, you know, that flaming fire pot, whatever that looked like, back in chapter 15. He said this is the first time he appears as a, as a human, did you say? As a person? And I think there's something to that. God's appearances to Abraham are getting more and more uh, solid, you might say. More and more descriptive, yes. Jacob, what else? Yeah, so all of these, Jacob said there's sort of a foreshadowing, which is a great word, the foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. So in the book of Hebrews, it says that um, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. And I think it's later in Hebrews, might be Colossians. It says um, the Old Testament was a shadow of things that are to come. So think of my shadow, if the light is behind me and my shadow is on the floor, you can see something of my shape, right? You can see, oh, he's got 10 fingers, right? Um, But shadows are also always a little bit distorted, aren't they? You can't really get a good, you, you sort of see the shape of things, but you're not quite sure. That's the Old Testament, it's shadowy. So the Lord appears here to Abraham and You know, there's three guys, but only one of them is the Lord, and we'll look at these other two in a minute, but it's very shadowy, and then when Jesus comes, the shadow, it's like I step into the room, and you say, oh, 
I don't need to look at the shadow anymore. Now I can look right at your face. Okay, now I saw your face, Pastor. Let's, <laughs> let's go back to the shadow. Yes? It just strikes me that this has something to do with why the Jews reject Jesus. I mean, they had ideas of what he was going to be, and he didn't fulfill their expectations. And then we, the Goyim, are the ones who accept him. Yeah, and I mean, it's not all, not all Israel. It wasn't mass in mass. Nobody accepted him, right? But you, you are right. On the whole, by and large, the Jews said, ah, this is not the Messiah we wanted. That's not what I thought. You know, when I looked at the shadows, I thought when the Messiah came, he would be a little more impressive or he would be different than Jesus. And now Jesus appears and I'm not so sure about it. Okay, let's, let's talk about the meal here. Okay, so look what Abraham says to these three visitors. O Lord, he says, and you notice something probably in your text, the Lord there is not all capital letters. Have you ever noticed that in your Bible? Sometimes it's all, all caps, Lord. This one is uh, lowercase o-r-d. So the word behind the translation is just, you could translate this as my master. We hear Lord and we immediately think that's a divine title. Okay? But sometimes in the Bible, and, and oftentimes it is, um, but your, your Bibles will give you a hint of this. When you see it like this, L-O-R-D, all caps, this is um, a confession of Yahweh. When you see it like this, it just means master. Okay? Why Yahweh? What does, what's Yahweh go back to? I am who I am, right? When Moses asks, what is your name? The Lord said, didn't say, the Lord, don't you know? He said, I am who I am. And in Hebrew, that comes out as Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. 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 Okay. So you learned your Hebrew for the day. Um, whenever the Jews would come to that word, they were afraid to say it out loud. Why? Power of God. They might accidentally use it in a vain manner. Yeah. Think of the way, you know, that we, we don't, um, I don't know, uh, those of you who are elders, I still feel this way. When I'm holding the bread and the wine, I'm a little bit nervous. What if I drop this? What if I spill it? Right? It, um, holy things are special. They're important. And you don't want to misuse them. So the Jews came up with this idea, okay, every time we come across the word Yahweh, instead of actually saying that holy special name, we're going to substitute a word for it. Messiah. No, they didn't say Messiah. They said, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai. Adonai means master or Lord. And this is actually, it's kind of convoluted, but... Um, how many of you remember growing up talking about Jehovah? Did you ever talk about Jehovah? Some of our hymns still sing um, the Lord's name as Jehovah. That is a combination of Yahweh and Adonai. Okay, so <laughs> it's sort of a, uh, it's a, yeah, it's an odd combination. The idea is we don't want to say Yahweh because it's so holy. So we'll say 
the consonants of Yahweh, Yah-ho-wah, but we'll use the vowels of Adonai, Ah-oh-jah-ho-vah, okay? Um, I know it sounds convoluted, and it is. <laughs> the point here is they wanted to reverence the name, and so they just didn't say it. Now, is that a good reason? What do you think? You be the critic. Is there something good about that, or is it completely, just say the name. Yeah, a little bit, right? God, God, just like Jesus knows that the bread might get dropped and the wine might get spilled, and he doesn't therefore say, better not ever use it, right? He says, I know that this could result in a spill. Um, I know that the name might get misused. He still said, my name is Yahweh, use that, right? Um, so some Bible translations will actually include, does anyone's, do, do any of you have a Bible that includes the name Yahweh? I don't, it's not in the ESV, but you might see that occasionally, and now you know why. In the King James, I think they use Jehovah more often. Do they use, yeah, every once in a while they use Yahweh. Um, but it's become so sort of ingrained that I think at this point, trying to get back to using Yahweh would feel um, pretty stilted. It would feel odd. And also, there's this other thing that happened between the time God gave his name as Yahweh and the time that we live in. What else happened between that time and this time? Yeah, Jesus came. And when he said, go and make disciples, he said, baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we don't use, we, it's not a big deal to use Yahweh or Jehovah or Lord. I just want you to know what's behind that. Okay? Yes, Mike. This one? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're getting there um, not just because he uses that word. And that's my point here. It's not that, oh, see, Abraham knows it's God because he uses the word Lord. That's just a, um, you know, that's what I would say to you. I'd say, Lord, Lord Michael, right? Um, sir, it's a term of respect, okay? Um, don't you think we should call him Lord Michael? That sounds really good. Don't you, don't you call him Lord, Mary? <laughs> okay, so we've got the title, Lord, okay? And he invites him in. If I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. So he's speaking to one and three at the same time. There's a singular and plural going on here. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. And what's Abraham going to do for him? I'm going to bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Who said that? They. Did one of them say it, or did all three of them say it? You think just one? Anybody think they all spoke in unison? 
Jason, okay, Jacob and Jason have to have it out afterwards. We don't really know, but it does, the text says they. So whether one spoke for all or they all spoke as one, you get this three and one and one and three sort of shadow going on here, okay? Now, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, quick, three seas of flour, knead it and make cakes. Then he ran, right, he's just been circumcised, but he runs out to the herd, took a calf, gave it to a young man who prepared it, how? Quickly. Quickly. Why is he in haste? Yeah, he doesn't want the Lord to pass by. You do it as quick as you can. Uh, you don't drag your feet if God is at your table. You do it all, you get it, you want to sit down with him. And, well, Sarah had to, yeah, Sarah's quickly making the morsel of bread, and Abraham's quickly putting together some meat now. I guess that's your point, isn't it? And then he took curds and milk. Now, what do you have to have in order to make curds? Does anybody make their own curds? You need a cow, you need whey, you need thyme, and you probably need lots of milk, right? Now, maybe, this, maybe I'm way off base here, but, you know, if Abraham was a poor man, you know, way um, shaking up the milk to make the curds, that's what you do if you have more milk than you know what to do with, right? Well, we've got all this extra milk around here, and um, what do we do with it? Well, let's make it into some curds, okay? And, and so Abraham is a, a well-to-do man. And when the Lord is at his table, here's maybe the, the take-home point, he doesn't serve him junk. Let's put the leftovers out, <laughs> right? Um, would any of you do that for a guest? If, if I came over to your house this afternoon, would you open up the Tupperware and say, uh, Pastor, I'm not sure when we had this, but maybe you can eat it. This is, Abraham is doing, he's doing it all quickly, but my point here is he's doing the best. He's giving this visitor the best he's got as fast as possible. This is a great picture of hospitality. And I'm stressing that word because we're going to see a contrast between Abraham and what happens in Sodom just in terms of their hospitality. Okay? Then, uh, what does Abraham do? The last sentence that Ben read is significant here. He stood next to him. Now, okay, picture pastor coming over to your house. Okay, You quickly put together a really good meal. What are you going to do when you serve it to me? You're going to join me, right? Because we're equals, even though I'm a pastor. right? Um, we, are, we share a common status. Okay? What does it, what's the significance of Abraham standing and watching? He, yeah, he's the servant, and these guests, he thinks, Abraham is convinced here, nothing's been said. Nothing's explicitly been said. But everything Abraham's doing indicates this guy is more important than me. This guy and his two, his entourage, these three, are my masters. And I don't, I don't sit down with him until he says, come and, come and eat with me. 
Okay? Um, and this business of standing, not sitting before the Lord, you know who else never got to sit down when they were on duty in the Lord, at the Lord's table? Who else serves at the Lord's table in the Old Testament? The priests. That's their job. They're holy chefs, right? Think, think about what a priest is doing all day long. Chop, 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 chop. Put it in the fire. Put some bread over here. Put some wine over here. They're like waiters and chefs and sous chefs. They're God's chefs. But they're never allowed to sit down at the table until they go off duty. Okay? What does Jesus do when he institutes a meal? He reclines with the disciples, right? So this standing is the Old Testament. We get to actually sit with Jesus. He says, hey, pull up a chair. You know, it's really great that you um, put your offerings on the altar. Uh, I see you and I raise you, <laughs> right? Here's some bread and wine. Here's my body and blood. Yes? Well, I think it's natural for us in our era and as Christians to look at the priests, and at least especially when we're young, we think of them almost like pastors. Yeah. But there are so many things they do that pastors don't do, and I'm not even sure, I mean, did they leave? You have rabbis, but that was yeah. the Jewish era as opposed to the Israelite era. I mean, did they preach? Did they do those yeah, the, it's a good question. The, I, I don't get the impression that the temple was a place for preaching. I'm sure there was some instruction going on. Yeah, right. The, the temple is the place for sacrifice. The temple is the place for ritual. Okay? Um, and it's not that the synagogue wasn't, I'm sure it was very ritualized too. Most of our um, service of the word, if you, I know Paul will tell you the story here in a minute, um, but if you go to Temple Israel, you would say, man, that seems like just what we do, except we read the gospel and they read Moses. Um, so it's not that the synagogue was not ritualized, but that was really the place for preaching and teaching. Um, the priests taught by what they did. It was a, um, instruction by doing, which is in some ways the better way to teach somebody, right? Caleb, how do you teach your sons how to play baseball? You show them, right? You don't say, all right, now um, fill out this test, read this book. You say, you put your fingers on the laces like this, you reach back, nope, further, right? You pull their hands back. That's what the priests were doing. So you bring your animals to be sacrificed, and the priest says, okay, lean on the animal here. Put all your weight on it. Put your hands on the head. Nope, like this, right here. Really lean on it, you know, as if it was you. Now go kill it. Nope, not like that. Cut it right here. Nope, not there. Cut it right here. And it, it, so it's pedagogy by action, okay? The, the rabbis or the, um, the Levites are the ones out in the synagogue saying, now open your Bibles, we're going to read, we're going to talk about chiasms, right? That's the Levites. The priests are just, let's do it. And the ritual teaches. You teach by doing. You learn by what you do. Hey, you said I would say so. Yes, go for it. I set him up.
And so I thought, I want to go visit these different churches and see what's similar and what's different. And I thought, well, I'll throw it to the class. We went, and I cheated a little. We started with the Jewish temple. And then we went to all these other ones. But it was really interesting. We went on, I think it was Rosh Hashanah. I think it was the Jewish New Year in the fall. Correct. And every old Jewish merchant was there. <laughs> and they actually had a female rabbi. And she was a rabbinical student. Not Mike and Mary rabbi. Jim, did you guys know something? No. But anyway, it was great. She had a little homily that was about the length of our sermons. She talked about the butterfly. Afterwards, you wouldn't believe it. They had a spread for us, you know, I mean, the food and so on. We're all talking. I had asked questions. And I, we told her that the butterfly was a symbol of rebirth in Christianity. She didn't know that. And understand, I'm not putting her down, but it just blew me away sure. how little she knew about Christianity. And Chuck and I had a friend who played trivia with dearly loved Jewish. And whenever the name of Jesus comes up or the idea of Jesus, he's like, your guy. Don't be your guy, too. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, it was an interesting thing. I'm really glad we went and they were very Gave you lots of good food. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so any questions on the meal? Anything else on the meal here? You can see, again, some of these shadows of the Lord's Supper. Anytime there's a meal in the Old Testament, we should be thinking along the lines of, does this have anything to do with the Lord's Supper, with Holy Communion? And you can see some connections here. Again, it's shadowy. It's not, I'm not saying this was the Lord's Supper. But all of the meals of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the, the Lord's Supper. Sure, that's a good point. You're right. Um, remember the Passover, why did they eat unleavened bread? Because they couldn't wait for it to rise. It had to be fast food, <laughs> um, freedom food. Okay. Um, the picture behind me here, this is a famous icon. Has anyone ever seen this icon? Uh, it's called, it, it is famous, I, you have to believe me. Um, it's famous, it's called Rubelevs, the, the guy who wrote it. They, taught, they say, the Orthodox say, you don't draw an icon, you write it. Okay? So the man who wrote it was named, I think his name was Alexander. That sounds Russian, doesn't it? His last name, I know, was Rubelev. And uh, this is supposed to depict the three visitors with Abraham. In the, in the middle there is the meal and the three figures um, are all kind of leaning towards each other, right? So you get this, there's a bit of a sense of motion around the table. And when, uh, when I think this is called the icon of the Holy Trinity, okay? So Rubelev reads this story as a prefigurement, a shadowy form of the Trinity coming to Abraham, okay? Now, in a minute, we're going to see that the Bible does not say that these were the three persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to see one of them is identified as the Lord, and the other two are angels. But even so, these three who are all speaking in unison, acting in unison, I think, you know, what Rubelev sees in that, what he draws here, is not wrong. 
you know, you have a, a bit of a shadow of the Trinity already here. When God comes, he likes to appear in kind of this triple form, three and one, one and three, okay? Um, but I just wanted to show you that I should have made it a little bit brighter, uh, but so it goes. Let's talk about Sarah then. We want to get to Sarah. Um, so look at verse, where do we leave off? Nine. Who will read for us this business with Sarah? Read 9 through 15. Icy, do you want to read that for us? In case you forgot, keep going. (laughs) The wayward women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah I love this reading. Um, I got to tell this story. At the seminary, they had, there were three chapel services every day. There was the main one at 10 o'clock. That's the one everybody was supposed to go to. Um, But there was an early one at like 7 o'clock and a late afternoon, like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, my job there was to set up the early one, which meant I had to find willing uh, men to lead that service. And there'd be like 10 people who would come at, at 7 o'clock in the morning, as you might imagine. Well, one day, this was our reading, and uh, the reading went from verses 1 through 15, and it stopped right there. Um, and it was great because whoever was leading chapel that day was reading, and he came to this and he said, No, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. And we, and we all kind of chuckled because it, it seems, and I think that there's... Um, in reflecting on that, there's something, I think, kind of right about that. This whole, this whole little scenario here, the Lord is speaking, he somehow knows her name, right? He's never been to this house before, but he says, hey, Abraham, where's your wife, Sarah? Right? That kind of confirms this is the Lord, right? Um, and you can even see it right in the text. Look at verse, um, verse 10. There you get the first appearance of this Lord. Everybody see that? Your Bibles have that all capitalized, right? So this isn't just Abraham wishing. It's not hopeful thinking, oh man, I wish the Lord would come and visit me. Hey, here's three guys. It must be the Lord. It really is the Lord, okay? He knows about Sarah. And the whole thing kind of revolves around Sarah's laughter, okay? Sarah's laughter. So... um, Where else have we seen in the Bible somebody laughing? Can you think of other laughers in the Bible? Yeah, when Abraham is the father of us all, right, and he's the father of slapstick humor. He falls on his face. Go back to chapter 17. Okay, now that I said that, while you're looking back there, what can think the unthinkable? An iceberg. 
right? What? Come on. What can sink the unsinkable? An iceberg. That's funny. Donna, come on. That's funny. Anyways, uh, back in chapter 17, here's what it says about Abraham. Look at verse... You guys are killing me. Um, where does he fall on his face and laugh? There it is. Look at verse 17. 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face, which is the same thing he did when God appeared to him the first time, but this time he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Now compare that laughter with Sarah's laughter. It's the same, they're identical, right? Look back in chapter 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, doesn't say she fell on her face. But so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord, lowercase Lord, right? Abraham, uh, is old, shall I have pleasure? It's the same thing Abraham said, right? Now, it sounds like God is, well, what do you think? Does it sound like God is upset at her for laughing, or is he encouraging her laughter? You don't think either? Does anyone have an opinion on the matter? <laughs> okay. Right, so it's possible that, um, you know, he's chastising her. You shouldn't be laughing about this, Sarah. This isn't funny. It's not a laughing matter. Okay? Um, but that would seem, you know, it didn't seem wrong for Abraham to laugh. So why would it be wrong for Sarah to laugh? Is it just because women aren't allowed to laugh, only men? Oh, that's what it means. Women are to be silent in the churches. They're not supposed to laugh. Okay? What do you think, Catherine? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it could be that her laughter is uh, what we might call a sort of the laughter of unbelief. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he gave her kind of a chance. Like, obviously, you don't know who I am. Yeah, and so then he says, Why did she laugh? Okay, why did she laugh? And she said, No, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, you did. And it, it sounds like he's telling her, you shouldn't have done that. Okay? I want to suggest to you, he's doing uh, just what I did a minute ago. You should laugh. <laughs> when I tell a really funny joke like the iceberg, you, <laughs> you should laugh. Okay? Um, that, well, it, that's right. And so what God is doing here. What I think, you know, it could have gone differently. He could have said, why did Sarah laugh? Think of how she could have answered. She could have said, well, because you're going to give me pleasure in my old age. You're going to give me a son. I thought I was old and worn out, and Abraham is, like Paul says, as good as dead. And now you're telling us that we're going to have a son. This is funny. This is worth laughing about. Okay? And, uh, you know, we say things often like, you know, God has a sense of humor. 
right? Um, when little jokes get played on us, you know, your plans don't work out, but it works out better than you thought. Have you ever, had, have you ever said this? God must have a sense of humor, right? Um, I think he does. <laughs> and I think what he's doing to Sarah here is he's actually saying, you should, you should laugh about this. This should be a cause of joy, right? The, the birth of the son of promise, the miraculous birth of Isaac as one coming from the dead, Abraham's dead body, Sarah's dead womb, here comes life out of death. That is something that you can laugh about. Yes, Mona. Yeah, she's, this is, yeah, this is a good point. Um, Abraham had the dream. The Lord appeared to Abraham in chapter 17. We get no mention of what was Sarah up to. Um, you know, was she eavesdropping when that happened? I don't think you can eavesdrop on a dream unless that movie uh, Inception is right. Has anyone seen that yet? You, got, you never listen to me. You don't laugh at my jokes. You don't see the movies I tell you you need to see. Come on, Phil. Okay? Um, but this is a good point. Mona's point is right on. This is, this is kind of the first time that she's hearing for herself. Now, I'm sure Abraham told her, listen to this dream, dear. This is awesome. I'm sure Abraham told her, by the way, I got circumcised. <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm sure she knew. Okay? But you're right. This is the first time she's hearing it for herself. And so there is this sort of, for Sarah, the Lord is, and my point here is that God is not dealing harshly with her. You shouldn't laugh. This is not a laughing matter. Take it very seriously. Quit, quit laughing. He's telling her, it's okay to laugh. Go ahead. This is a cause of joy. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's her laughter, and God is giving her permission to laugh, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, imagine coming to church on Easter Sunday, and, you know, Alleluia, Christ is risen. You can't help but smile when you say that, right? Now, imagine you had a pastor who said, quit it with the smiling. This is a holy place. This is serious stuff. Icy, why did you smile? Dave, I heard you laughing in church. That's forbidden, verboten, as we say, okay? Um, that's not how God is talking to Sarah here. He is encouraging the laughter, which uh, if we have time here, what time is it? 1025. Let's look at a couple other of God's laughter, because God laughs a few times in the Bible. Look at, um, look at Psalm 2. We're going to see what God thinks is funny. I'll give you a hint. It has to do with icebergs. <laughs> if I say it enough, you'll, you're going to laugh. Okay. Just, we'll get to it. Look at Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What does God think is funny? Man trying to break away from him. You know, it's like your kid 
um, your, your eight-year-old son thinking he can actually beat you up, right? That's funny. Oh, yeah, okay, Jacob, you're going to beat me up, sure, right? The Lord laughs at this. He holds it in derision. Look at another example here, Psalm 37. Sure, yeah, Jonah trying to run away from God, that's funny. The Bible has lots of good jokes in it. Um, it's okay to laugh at them. Isn't that funny when Jonah tries to run away? Oh, maybe if I get away to Tarshish, maybe God can't find me there. Nope, doesn't work. Psalm 37, look at verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Um, trying to think of a good movie reference, but I'm, I'm not, I don't watch many movies except when my daughters want to watch Disney movies, you can see in Disney, you can see the bad guys fall coming a mile away, can't you? Right? You know that Scar, we just watched The Lion King, you know that Scar is doomed. It's not going to work out for him, is it? But he thinks it is. And so as, you know, when you're a little kid, the first time you watch, you think, Mufasa's dead, and Simba is long away from home, and Scar is ruling over Pride Rock, and he made an alliance with the hyenas. Everything is terrible. But when you're a grown-up, you watch it and you laugh, because you know Simba's going to come back, and he's going to, you know, Scar's going to get killed by the hyenas. This is ridiculous. Shh, oh, just so you know. It's, yes, you watch it and you say, this is ridiculous. So the Lord regards the plans of the wicked. There, it's like watching Scar. You know he's going to fall. God, it's funny. God laughs at it. One more example, Psalm 59. Verses 6 through 8. Each evening they, the enemies, come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city, there they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in, the, in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Okay? So the Lord laughs at the bad guys. He laughs at their plans. He, he knows that they're going to come to nothing. And that laughter is contagious, so look at the next one. We laugh with the Lord. Go to Psalm 52. Uh, verses 5 through 7. He's just gotten done praying about, you know, there's all these, all my enemies are trying to hunt me down, trying to take me down. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at their enemies, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Okay, so when the wicked, when they dig a pit and they fall into it, when the carpet gets pulled out on those who oppose the Lord, it's okay to laugh. Okay? It is okay to say, this is what happens to the wicked. I don't want to be like that. I'm glad that the Lord delivers us 
from the wicked. I know that might sound harsh, doesn't it? We, we recoil a little bit. I know I do when I first think of this. But you see it again and again in the Bible when the plans of the enemy are set straight, when justice comes out, it is a cause of joy. What's the best example of this? When did the nations rage and the people plot in together with a vain thing? When did they say, let us cast the Lord off? Herod and Pilate came together and became friends that day. And they crucified Jesus and they buried him and Pilate sealed up the tomb and they thought, sweet, we finally got rid of that guy. We were all tired of listening to him. And then the Soldiers come, and they're like, uh, by the way, the tomb's empty now. Um, it's not our fault. It's not our fault, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they make up a whole story. The resurrection is the ultimate, you know, joke. The resurrection is the ultimate twist. It's the turn from the plans of the wicked resulting in the good, the deliverance of the Lord. And that's why we laugh on Easter. The devil's plans have all come unglued. The plans of the wicked have all failed. Okay? Uh, Now, when you're going through it, when, uh, you know, you're suffering the attacks of wicked plans, it's hard to laugh. But when you come out of it, yeah, it's a good good thing to laugh. Okay? Questions on this? Or, Mary, you had your hand up. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is a little bit like. Yes. It's the laughter of relief. It's the surprise, right? That's, that's what makes the unthinkable funny, right? Is because there's this twist, um, and the surprise. Makes, you can't help but laugh. And that's what I, so to go back to the story, that's Isaac, and that's Jesus. He is the source of this laughter. I think Genesis 18, part of it is a chiasm. I'm sure it is a chiasm. It says that he tells him that I will come again. Draw it up for us, and next week, next week we'll put it on the board. We can find the chiasm there, okay? It's a chiasm, he said. All right, next week we'll look at uh, what follows. We've got Sarah laughing. We've got the promise of Isaac, which, by the way, Isaac means laughter, right? Um, And we'll get on to the next part here where Abraham uh, intercedes for Sodom, and we'll we'll get to Sodom and Gomorrah. No, no, next week we're going to take a break. Next week is... um, Catechesis Sunday. It's the start of Sunday school. So next week we're talking about confirmation and strengthening disciples, how disciples are made, um, word and communion and all that good stuff. Uh, But the week after, we'll look more at Abraham. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that though our sins deserve punishment, you have turned our weeping into joy and laughter. We thank you for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit who brings us um, to faith and into the church. We pray um, that you would bring an end to the wicked plans uh, of those who want to be rid of you and of your Son. Um, We pray that they would join with us in laughing at the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.
Amen. Good job, Kai Asimboy. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.